Hello, and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This is the second podcast from the Foundation discussing the electricity grid and the changes that will be needed to it if the UK is to reach net zero by 2050. With me to discuss that is Dr. Ileana Portuguese, who's a futurist at Siemens Energy Global. Dr. Portuguese, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Gavin. It's great to be here, but uh, please call me Ili. Ili, I will certainly do so. Before we dive into some of the detail, can you give us a bit of an overview of the problem? How does the electricity grid in the UK need to change over the next 20 years or so in order to move the country towards net zero? Oh, thanks, Gavin. So first, let me say that climate change is a major threat uh, for us all. With a share of 42% of CO2 emissions coming from the power sector, we are definitely a major contributor. Um, so in 20 years time, the UK electricity sector needs to be 70% or so fully decarbonized across its whole supply chain. Everything points to a future where there's a smarter and increasingly integrated energy system based on renewables and flexibility solutions. This future is also more dynamic with electrification and digitization of transport and society the size and location of demand requirements are expected to experience more fluctuations. So in order to deliver these figures, the quote is around 70 gigawatts of wind with the requirement of 20 gigawatts of floating wind by 2040. The technical solutions needed to operate such a system include energy storage and smart technologies that enable more consumer participation and are either already available or are attainable with continued innovation. So you mentioned a, a number of different renewables there, and obviously the price of renewables across the UK grid and globally has dropped immensely, which is fantastic. How realistic is the increase in renewables that's going to be needed? And has the UK got the right incentives in place to keep driving that forward over the next two decades? That's a, that's a great question. So... 70 gigawatts is around 9,800 wind turbines. So if you're looking at 20 years, and clearly it doesn't work like this, Gavin, but it's around 490 wind turbines a year to install. Is, is this possible? Yes. Is it difficult? Uh, yes. Does it need a concerted effort and a reevaluation of how projects get delivered? Uh, most definitely. There are some real challenges. First for me is the management of the supply chain pressure. The whole renewable value chain needs to be scaled up, not only the generation, but also the delivery. Without a doubt, new interconnections will be needed for security of supply and flexibility and significant investment on grid stability and modernization. How can we convince the supply chain to scale up to levels never seen before in the industry and which are not sustainable and indeed expected to drop dramatically 20 years from now. That is the real key. We then also need to look at planning permissions. In order to take advantage of this new renewable infrastructure, you need to interconnect it. And for this, you need to be able to expand the grid system quickly and at a cost that ensures the lowest cost technologies are deployed in the best locations. Building renewables to then have to constrain them is not a good approach for either the environmental or sustainability perspective. I think that planning grid connection 
and charging systems are important areas in this approach. When it comes to incentives, I think the, the first thing is to define incentives. And for me, the purpose of them is to create a decision framework for a regulated market, society or group. As such, it is a pretty broad term. We can talk about regulatory incentives, social incentives, government incentives, corporate incentives. The important factor is to have all of these incentives aligned to drive the right decisions and with them, the correct actions. There is no point, for example, having one of the most progressive forward-looking regulators if individuals within a region or nation have different incentives. Aligning these is a non-trivial project, an area social scientists raise constantly, but uh, between engineers, they do not seem to have much impact. It sounds like a really difficult, fascinating, but really difficult problem to get all of those incentives lined up. In all of this, what's the role of nuclear going forward? And, and is it the same in the UK and in other countries? Well, I think countries around the world choose their specific decarbonization path according to their individual resources, location and preferences. Nuclear, of course, is one option for almost CO2 free power generation that many countries rely on uh, now and in the future. In the case of the UK, it is already an existing nuclear power base. And of course, as I'm sure you know, uh, the UK is looking at small modular reactors for stationary power generation. I really see this decision for or against the use of nuclear energy as more of a political decision than a technical decision by an individual country. And each individual country has their own views on these, which I think has engineers and technologies we, we must respect and help deliver. That's really interesting. Other people might say that you need to get a certain amount of power and you need to have a lot of different possibilities. I mean, one of the challenges with renewables, of course, is intermittency. And for that, part of the solution is going to be storage and it's going to be batteries and things. And, and that's also a major problem. How do you see that kind of storage capacity rolling out and developing uh, across the grid? I think, uh, and, and I'm starting to sound a bit political, it depends on what you're trying to achieve and the purpose of storage, as well as, to be frank, going to one of your initial questions, the incentives around storage added to the commercial models that allow organizations to make money out of these technologies. I personally like to think of storage location as fueling during a marathon. Of course, it is great to fuel the night before and the same morning when you have time on your hands. And of course, it is great to fuel at the end. Uh, and by the way, that's where you need it most. How you manage where to fuel along the way, that is the key. And it really depends on the track. And at competition level, really, it decides who wins the race. Uh, storage is the same. We need to understand the demand patterns and power flows to understand where best to place the storage technology on a network and where it means it makes more technological sense, but also where it makes more financial sense for the different players. To be honest, though, overall, I believe that the rollout of storage in many nations is going to be led more by the market and investor appetite 
than by network optimization algorithms. I have not seen a nation yet with a clear path and model as to where exactly to store the, uh, to install your, the storage technologies. Just to follow up on that, what do you think the balance is between large centralized storage and smaller and smaller distributed storage, even down to people using electric cars and, and, and individuals and households? What's, how do you see that balance playing out? I mean, I think there are pros and cons with, with everything, Gavin. And this is where I think it is not going to be engineering designed solution. So clearly the use of distributed storage is key and would be great, especially from a resiliency perspective. The challenge comes in terms of how reliable that storage is across a long period of time. At the end of the day, you are socializing uh, private owned solution. And, and this is always comes with complexities around capability, maintenance and availability of such technology. On the other hand, of course, large scale storage technologies placed at generation or at transmission level are further away from the point of use, are officially significantly larger and therefore cost effective, more cost effective than localized uh, generation sources, but of course need to be transported. Well, the energy needs to be transported firstly from generation point and then to demand point if and when needed. Uh, so they provide resiliency at a larger uh, transmission network perspective, which more regional and local storage cannot provide. But at the same time, depending on the fault and issue at hand, it might not serve the right purpose. So there are pros and cons with everything, which I think market forces will drive. That may be one where we just have to see, but I can understand that we may end up with a, a little bit of both. You mentioned resiliency a couple of times in the last answer, and obviously climate change itself is going to generate certain things that the grid needs to be resilient from. I'm thinking of things like flooding and storms and, and so on. What do we need to do to ensure that the electricity grid has that kind of resilience? Climate resilience, I think, is about three, three, three different perspectives. The, the beginning, the, the initial part, which is, of course, the robustness of the grid to these events. Then the event itself, which is managing the operations of the grid during the disruption. And then, of course, the post-event practices, which is recovering from, from the event. In terms of the robustness, especially when looking at electricity networks, there's a lot of things that could be done. Of course, we all know that gas networks are intrinsically more resilient than electric networks due to the fact that they are undergrounded. And of course, we could do the same with electric assets. And we could, of course, cover them from environmental and external weather conditions, right? So we could effectively build them inside houses or build drains around them to allow water to come out. It's not just water, there's also some fires, maybe not in the UK, but definitely in other regions. There's materials nowadays that are not flammable and that, of course, are significantly less environmentally hazardous. And understanding how we can use such materials in the development and construction of any infrastructure 
be it electric or otherwise, I think is key in, in the future. When we're looking at the management of the disruption, I think I'm probably a bit biased, but utilities are very good at this. And depending on the region and the network design, uh, one can also look at new technologies involving software and hardware that might offer some of some fast mitigating solutions uh, and temporary responses, such as mobile units involving a mixture of network connection hardware, generation, storage, and uh, such technologies, which utilities are already using in many areas and, and are involved with. I think the key to managing disruption is planning and practice and making certain that you're always evolving your tools to, to support that. Recovery, I think, bluntly tends to be hard graft and modularization at the time. So uh, we can build and design our infrastructure in such a way that we can modularize it to allow fast recovery periods. And there's, of course, also technologies that can help us understand the severity of the damage in the first place, as well as what subsequent refurbishment uh, needs to be done. And these are also key at terms of, in terms of prioritizing the workload and the planning post-event. I wanted to ask you a little bit about international comparisons, actually. I know you're now based in Germany. How does Germany compare with the UK in terms of how it's thinking at a sort of national level about its electricity grid? And, and are there things that the UK can learn from what's going on in Germany at the moment? So in terms of the first question, I think in some aspects it is very similar. Germany's geographic position, however, makes it more complicated in, in my view. If my figures are right in terms of similarity, currently 41% of electricity in Germany comes from renewables with their share of heating and cooling uh, sitting at around 17%, which are similar to the UK figures. The difference really comes in the levers that can be pulled to achieve the remaining 60% to achieve net zero. The UK has significant offshore wind capability in the north and east, whilst Germany's is all in the north, really. For a country like Germany, distributed large generation for both heat and power, as well as energy saving measures and increasing energy efficiencies are crucial and drives a different design philosophy. There's also, of course, difference in public acceptance. According to a 2017 survey, 57% of people in Germany agreed to having a wind farm close to their house, which, as you know, is not really the case in the UK. Are these things things we can learn from in the UK and vice versa? I think, of course, I think there's always things we can all learn from each other. But at the end of the day, however, I think we must remember that we are not in a competition between nations or playing a theoretical game. I think the key here is delivery. And sometimes as engineers, paralysis by analysis tends to be our greatest threat. I think each nation has constraints and each nation has strengths and each nation has a budget they can commit to to achieve this initiative of net zero by 2050. What is most important, I think, is that each nation clearly defines the path to achieve their net zero ambitions by the given date of 2050. 
aligns all the levers they can to achieve the same, commits to them as a minimum for a long haul, and that will hopefully allow you, I, and others to support and get behind the action plan, which I think is really what is key in in the next decade. Part of that action plan is obviously phasing out fossil fuels, uh, which is something that definitely can't be done overnight. But the timescale is sort of a combination of a political and a technical issue. And I'm just interested, really, if there was a political drive to move away from fossil fuels more quickly, is that possible? Is that realistic from a technical point of view? The short answer is probably yes. I'll give you a slightly longer answer. And this is because I think it is a technical, a political, but it's also an economical one. I think the three things play a part. What we must never forget about this energy transition is that it needs to be fair, fair for everyone. And ideally, it needs to tackle the energy accessibility inequalities that currently exist in society. It also needs to be achieved whilst allowing societies and economies to grow in an increasingly digital and electrical world full of increasingly large number of uncertainties and increased volatility. So can nations move away faster from fossil fuels than their current plans, considering current technology and the innovation pipeline around that? I suspect they can, if cost wasn't an issue, and if the risk of failure or impact of underachievement was not taken into consideration, and if people's opinion was not important to them, then in most cases, probably. But we must also be wary that fast decisions without analysis can lead to another challenger. And we all know what happened there. So there are a huge amount of unknowns and variables that need to be considered when delivering a, an operating net zero electricity network, especially if on top of this, we add the extra demand of electrification of transport and parts of industry, heating and cooling. The dynamics of the system, the control, the automation and the markets are things which we haven't yet experienced. The ambitions we currently have in many nations are indeed that ambitions. And we must never forget the complexity, size and seriousness of the task we have at hand. We are trying to transform a $3.5 trillion industry globally in 28 years. We are talking here about technological and social transformation much faster than that of telephony and computing. In fact, probably the fastest social transformation we have ever seen. So possible, yes. Achievable, probably. Do I understand why we are where we are? Definitely. Very sobering analysis there. So given everything that you've been saying so far, and we have this 28-year period that you were just talking about, a lot of people still look to the long term. Let's look a bit shorter, the next five years, just to sort of conclude this discussion off. What would you say the most important things were for the UK to do over the next five years to make sure that we're then on track for where we need to be in 28 years? Five years takes us to 2027. Um, 
by then, of course, if we're looking at the UK, we need to have definitely contracted at least the 40 gigawatts of offshore wind. I think we're close, if, if I'm right, after, after what happened in Scotland. And we need to have the connections, contracts and planning permissions in place for all of the construction works. With all of the works awarded and a significant amount of it commenced, we are driving an incredibly large infrastructure program in the UK with our ambition around renewables. And we must not forget that other nations are in a similar position. And hence, going back to the previous point around supply chain, there's going to be a lot of pressure there. I suspect first in gets the price. There must also, I think, be a plan to eliminate or significantly reduce renewable network constraints. Last year in Scotland, constraint payments for onshore wind came out to around 107 million alone, I believe. Building renewables and then constraining them at current levels, I do not believe is a sustainable or cost-effective way of looking at the transition. Third, I, you mentioned it previously, of course, incentives. I think incentives across the energy value chain need to be clearly aligned. And where there are gaps, they need to be set. And this needs to happen fast. Why fast? Because we are really talking about shifting 30 million households and thousands of industrial and commercial players to adopt new technologies and ways of engaging with energy. Building the renewables and transferring our energy supply to an intermittent source without changing how we engage with it is not going to work. So we really need a concerted effort there. I think we also need to develop a medium or long-term commercial and market model that considers all the levers the new generation demand and technologies at large can offer. The aim with this would be to address uncertainties that the previous three points have not addressed, such as new business models and commercial models. The truth is that no one wants to take venture capital risk with infrastructure returns. And right now, that is what we are asking people to do. Fifth, and probably the most important one, I think we need to change the narrative. Right now, there's a lot around assigning guilt around delays or slowness. Some people claim it's the regulation that needs changing. Some people say it's risk aversion of the industry or the incumbents not wanting to change. I think we need to move to a more positive collaborative narrative. At the end of the day, uh, we need everyone to succeed in this journey we are taking. And to do this, we all need to work together. I think we can always analyze post-event what could have been done better. But in order to do that, uh, we need to do it first. So these, these are my five points, Gavin. And a great way to end up. We'll just have to see how much of that does happen over the next five years. But whatever does happen, it's going to be a very busy time. That's all we've got time for. Uh, but Illy, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Gavin, for having me. It's uh, been a pleasure and looking forward to working with you in the next 30 years to achieve this. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Dr. Iliana Portuguese, 
a futurist at Siemens Energy Global. Rebuilding the UK electricity grid was also the subject of a Foundation for Science and Technology event held on the 23rd of March, 2022. A recording of that event is available on our website at www.foundation.org.uk. Also on our website are details of all of our other events, all of our blogs, and all previous editions of this podcast. Until the next time, goodbye.